0: Remain standing now and take your Bibles and turn together with me to Matthew chapter 17. We'll be picking up where we left off last week. Matthew chapter 17. Let's again read though Matthew chapter 16. We'll pick up in the last verse because that's connected with what comes after. Um, In fact, if you look at Mark's... um, version of the transfiguration, this final verse is is contained in Mark chapter 9. It's connected to to what comes after. So let's read here uh, together. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28 through chapter 17, verse 13. These are the words of God. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. My soul longs for Your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Let's pray now and ask for the Lord's blessing. Our God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves before You at this moment, clinging, as it were, to Your feet, asking that You would feed us, O Lord, upon the the bread of Your Word. We can dispense with the bread of this world, but we cannot dispense with the bread of Your Word. Father, may You make it to us morsels that feed our very souls, May we find that as we leave here, we do so unwillingly, longing as it were for the next time we gather under Your Word. Would You teach us? We come as Your children asking that You would do so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you I'm sure are familiar with a book that Chuck Colson wrote uh, many, many years ago now called How Now Shall We Live? And this was... a a reflection on how the believer is to live in this world and the times that we find ourselves. And, and I think as we turn to the transfiguration, we have to think about this fact. How now shall we live? What, In other words, what, what is the practical bearing that the transfiguration of Christ has on my life? And And as we looked at this passage last week, I asked you to think of this in terms of It it, it is for the disciples at at this moment in history something that would be future. But what they beheld as a preview is in our past. The transfiguration of Christ, in other words, is something that for the disciples was future, but for you and me in 2023 is, is in our past. And it was revealed to these three men, Peter, James, and John, so that they would see what? The Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And and what we said last week is that that whole idea is set up for us in Daniel 7, where the Son of Man ascends in the clouds, where? To the Ancient of Days. This is a picture of Christ ascending up and receiving glory and dominion forever and ever. So He is a Davidic king, but He's not one that would ascend the throne of Solomon with its seven ivory steps and and lions beside it. The, The throne that Christ has ascended is is in the heavenly realms. And He sits there in our flesh, having been raised from the dead. And He has been given dominion over all things. This is what He assured His disciples of in the Great Commission. This day, I have been given authority over heaven and earth, over all things. Well, how does that affect you and me? Well, every day, that you wake up, and every day that you go to bed, you do so under the dominion of a, ru- a ruling and reigning king who has eternal and everlasting power. And we find that the Scriptures repeatedly refer back to or, or to the present reality of Christ's dominion and its significance for the believer. Let's just turn and look at Hebrews chapter 1, for instance. Let's read the first four verses from Hebrews chapter 1 together. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, notice, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what Hebrews, the writers of the Hebrews is telling us is that before, after His resurrection and ascension, Jesus was promoted. Before He rose from the dead, remember, He was made in our exact likeness a little lower than the angels. now, he is above the angels, and He has complete dominion over all heaven and earth. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and you have to appreciate the writer to Hebrews. He's like a lot of us, and I say, I know the Bible says this somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him, and some of you would say, Amen. But, we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone." That passage is important because taste death is what Jesus applies back to the disciples. You won't taste death until you see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And we're going to refer back to that later. But we see that the author to the Hebrews, this was very important as he's writing to Jewish people. He's telling them that Christ is the ascended King. He is the one who is the son of David who has not only the likeness of man, but he is the God-man whose dominion and glory is forever and ever. And so sometimes we think about what it might be like to have men who, who are in governance over us who exhibit godly character. Can you imagine all Supreme Court justices who profess faith in Christ and take their devotions from His Word every day? and pray about every decision that they make. Or a president who rises every day and takes his counsel from the Word of God and calls around him godly men to give him counsel, who sits Sunday by Sunday under the preaching of the Word, who loves the Word of God, or or congressmen who do the same, who rule over the United States of America and every country looking to the Word of God for its eternal wisdom. Can you imagine what that would be like? No, you can't, because we've never had that. But the Scriptures do remind us that we sit under the rule of a divine monarch. You have a real king who sits in your real flesh, who's been tempted in every way as you are, yet without sin, who speaks to you the word of God, and who exhibits to you the real love of God, divine love each and every day. And when you call upon Him, even though you cannot see Him, as John reminded us, you love Him. And He speaks to you by His Holy Spirit. Yes, the ascension of Christ is absolutely vital for the Christian life. Because you haven't been left subject to the powers of this earth, whether they are supernatural or natural, but your Christ is bringing all things into subjection to himself. And this is what we reflect on as we come to Matthew chapter 16, verse 28 to Matthew chapter 17. These three men are given a preview of this, this glorious reign of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we said, well, well, Jesus took him up on a high mountain, which we know as Mount Hermon, a picture from the Old Testament of all of the nations flowing to him. In other words, under the new covenant, Christ is expanding. He is expanding the glorious promises of God so that you no longer have to belong to a certain ethnic race to know God's promises and His salvation. Now it goes out to the ends of the earth. And we can go out and invite all people to come in and know Christ and His salvation. This is reflected in that mountaintop vision that He gave to Peter, James, and John. This morning we want to look at just three other things from this in verses 2 and 3. We want to see that Christ the King talks with God. That Christ the King is a righteous judge and that Christ the King fights courageously. Let's notice, first of all, in verse 2, that Christ the King talks with God. Can you imagine what this would have been like on that mountain that day? Verse 2 of chapter 17. And he was transfigured before them. Literally, this is the word uh, metamorphosis. Um, In in sort of a real way, if you think of how a, a caterpillar goes into his cocoon and comes out a beautiful, radiant butterfly. Christ was transformed before them. And what do we notice first of all? That his face shined... Like the sun. And you can, you can, if you put yourself in their shoes, uh, um, you can imagine that, that this is Peter and James and John doing the very best that they can to say, This is what I saw. I can say, I can't, it's indescribable in all of its glory because I know the sun was shining, but the brilliance of Christ's face outshone the sun. What is the significance of Christ's shining face? Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 34. And you know that in Exodus chapter 34, we have this glorious moment. Remember that um, Moses was on the top of the mountain on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days and nights and he didn't eat anything. And it was at that moment that God gave him the two tables of the law along with all of the instructions. I think gave him a vision. He gave Moses in that moment a, visionly, a, a, visionly, a vision of the heavenly realm. And Moses came down from the mountain and he found the Israelites doing naughty things. And his anger was aroused and he threw the two tables down and they shattered. But God was gracious and he called Moses to come back up. Moses said, I want to see your glory. And so God gave Moses two new tablets of stone. And, and look with me at Exodus chapter 34 where God gives him the tables of, of the law again. This is verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. The law of God does not change. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. This happens over and over in the Scriptures. No one shall come up with you And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him. And this is the moment that the covenant is renewed and God put Moses in the cleft of the rock. And I love what John Owen says about this, that that Moses was transformed himself having seen only God's hind parts, as it were, pass before him. But I want you to skip down now and see, um, let's skip to verse, uh, read verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And what did he do? He proclaimed the name of the Lord. So according to verse 2, Moses went up. He did exactly as the Lord commanded him and he heard the Lord proclaim his glory to him. The Lord is compassionate, slow to anger. He has abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. And Moses responded by bowing his head to the earth and worshiping God. I want you to notice now verse 29 what happened to Moses in that moment. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. So when Moses came down from the mountain, his face is shining. In fact, Moses was embarrassed about the fact that his face was shining, and so he eventually put a veil over it. To hide that fact. But what I think is important about verse 29 is it tells us why Moses' face was shining. Look what it says. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. Why? Because he had been talking with God. Why, why does Jesus' face shine in His transfiguration. Because Christ, your King, is one who talks with God. He is one who, when He speaks, He makes known to you the will of God. And and this was so important. Again, we have to put ourselves in Israelite shoes. This was so important because the Israelites were based on Moses' promise in Deuteronomy chapter 18, they are expecting that God would raise up for them another Moses. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, that's Sinai, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require require it of him. So you see, there's this anticipation that God is going to raise up an Israelite man from among your brothers. And this man will have the words of God on his tongue. And he is going to proclaim them to you. Well, the transfiguration of Christ and the shining of His face demonstrates that Deuteronomy 18 is fulfilled in Jesus. When He speaks... He doesn't merely speak the words of a man. He speaks to you the words of God. This is why, in, in just a few short, in the next verse in Matthew chapter 17, when the cloud comes over the men, what does Jehovah say to them? Listen to Him. Christ the King is one who talks with God. Now, on the one hand, this enables us to trust that Jesus taught the very words of God when He proclaims salvation to His people and says, believe in Him, believe also in Me. When He says, if you eat My body and drink My blood, My life is within you. All of these promises that He makes to His disciples, God is telling them, you can trust this. And even now, this man, clothed in His glory, is seated at God's right hand. And all creation has been subjected to Him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it teaches us that the same power that created the world is still exercising providence over the world. That is Christ. One who has your flesh is seated at the right hand of the Father, the One who teaches you, come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. That is the Word of God coming to you. There's no division of will. We don't see Christ wanting one thing and the Father wanting another thing and the Spirit wanting another thing. It is all one will demonstrated in Christ. And I think that as we work through this, we see something very special. Moses couldn't bring anybody to the top of the mountain. But Jesus does. And when you trust in Him, He will bring you where He is. And when you come to Him confessing your sins, And repenting and trusting in His work in your behalf. The Spirit of God unites you to Him so that right now, in a real way, even though you are here, you are seated with Him. You're already there. And you have access to the Father just as He has access to the Father. And when you pray, He repeats your prayers And he brings down to you here all the blessings of his kingship. And he helps you to release all of your fears. Now he reminds us, as he reminded the disciples, he said, I have come to bring a sword, not peace. I don't think that we understand that as certainly Christ wields a sword. But I think that they were to understand that in this way. I have not come to bring peace to Israel yet. But what you're going to see as my followers is that you go out proclaiming to the earth that Christ has dominion, a sword will come against you. In other words this is not going to be this is not a second Samuel chapter 7 moment where we reread in verse 1 and all Israel had peace from their enemies. When you proclaim expect a sword against you and this is again reminds us why Jesus told the disciples take up your cross be prepared to take up your cross literally the beam and wield it on your shoulders because you will face death. For my sake. But you can also trust that when Jesus assures you from his word of the love of God, that that is meaningful because he speaks the very words of God. Secondly, we see that Christ the King judges in righteousness. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. And His face shone like the sun. This is the messenger of, of God. And His clothes became white as light. So you can imagine this vision then. There's the radiant face of the Lord Jesus Christ which you yourself will behold in eternity. Which all of our loved ones who have died in the Lord, they behold at this very moment. Spiritually. But He is also a righteous judge. And again, this pulls from Daniel chapter 7. If you turn back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we find that the Ancient of Days, to whom the Son of Man ascends, is clothed similarly. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool." His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So this again is a reflection on Daniel chapter 7. This, this, um, this physical appearance is reflected in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Mark, probably quoting Peter, said his clothes became so white that if you bleach them and bleach them and bleach them, you couldn't get them this white. Literally, they, they, light emanates from them. And that His garments were white depicts his radiant, the radiant righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. In His death, He became sin for all of His people. On His throne, He is clothed in light. What does this mean for us? That the sacrifice of Christ has been accepted. He's no longer sin, but he's raised in righteousness. Jeremiah, speaking of the Messiah, wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And you see then, as you are seated with him, what kind of clothing do you bear? Seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Radiant, righteous clothes already given to you in Christ by faith alone. You are seated with Him. This is the assurance of the Scriptures. That through Christ, your clothing can be white as well. As you listen to Him, He rem- invites you to know His forgiveness and assures you of His cleans- cleansing. Think about Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Re- remember that um, in the confession of faith, um, it, or the larger catechism, The unregenerate man, his heart is filled with the horrors of hell. What does that mean? Well, he's perpetually afraid. He's always afraid of dying because he doesn't know in the end if he is going to be accepted by God and received into heaven, or if God is going to condemn him, he's gonna go to hell. So he lives with that fear. He fears, I think he fears dying ultimately. And he does everything that is is in his power to resist that physical power. Because the horrors of hell fill his heart. And so he feels within himself, even the unregenerate man, he knows his guilt before the Lord. He knows that he is condemned. And he does all that he can to try and assuage that guilt. Washes himself Maybe he uses hand sanitizer. Tries to make his his clothes clean. He tries to quote mantras to himself to help him feel better about himself. And Jeremiah too reminds you, "There, there is nothing that you can do to remove the stain of guilt. It's indelible. But then we read, Passages like Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, just as the ancient of days hair. Why do we need to see Christ clothed in his righteousness? Because you are clothed in his righteousness through faith. In Christ, the sacrifice of all sacrifices has been accepted, and he has gone up into the presence of the Lord in your flesh. And the scriptures assure us that when you come to him in faith, you are seated with him in that same righteousness. From there, he rules and reigns. Christ, the king, talks with God. He rules righteously, and then finally we see that he fights courageously. Now, look with me at verse 3. This is kind of an odd feature of, of our passage. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. So apparently, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we don't need to know what Moses and Elijah said. It would maybe be nice to satisfy our curiosity. Why were Moses and Elijah there? What did they have to say to Christ? We don't know. But we still ask the questions. We know that Moses wrote the law. He was called by God to be Israel's deliverer from bondage to Pharaoh. You know that. Elijah was a great prophet in Israel and confronted Ahab's idolatry and wickedness. Both of them were brave men. Both of these men were prophets of God who confronted wicked kings. Moses and Elijah both encountered Jehovah on a mountain. Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. One might argue that both Moses and Elijah were visited by Jehovah after they had fled a wicked king. Think about the moment when God first appeared to Moses. He had, remember, He had killed the Egyptian man, and that was discovered, and so He fled into the wilderness. And this is where He meets His wife providentially. And he's walking in the wilderness one day, according to Exodus chapter 3, and he, he sees this, a bush burning, but the bush is not burned up. And he said to himself, I will turn aside and I will see what this is. And there, God told him to take off his shoes, for this is holy ground, and he gave Moses his covenant memorial name of Jehovah, Jehovah. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was running away from Jezebel because she was persecuting the prophets. And it was in that moment that Elijah said, Lord, just take my life. I'm the last one. Just go ahead and take me out. And so both of these men were fugitives in that moment of their lives. And God visited them to encourage and comfort them. After Jehovah's visitation, both Moses and Elijah returned to confront the kings from whose presence they fled. One of the assurances of Scripture is that God is making Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Perhaps one of the things that we take away from this, the significance of Moses and Elijah, is that this is the same inflection point in Christ's life. This is the moment that he turns and he went to Jerusalem to face his own wicked king. To go head on with evil and defeat Satan and death itself. And this is the assurance that He gives to you in this moment. As this same glorious, righteous King seated on His throne is really ruling and reigning. That He has faced His wicked enemy and defeated Him. He came back with the keys of death and Hades Himself. He is the Messiah to whom the nations will flow, the one who talks with God, the one who rules in righteousness and fights courageously. And this is the importance for you. For all those who have turned to Christ, who have confessed their sins to Him, it is His will that you have assurance of His salvation. That He rules and reigns even at this moment. And He is your King. And ultimately, he is the one who demands your complete fidelity, your faithfulness. And there's nothing more for you to do than trust him and obey him. And he is over all things. And what he has said to you, he will do. If you find assurance in his words, it is the assurance of God. And you are seated with him. And it is His intention that you should have a confidence in His rule and reign even now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, as we come before You, we acknowledge that You are an enthroned King. That You have dominion over all things. That You have defeated Your great enemy, death. That you have been raised from the dead as a portrayal of your great victory. That you are ascended up now. That you are seated on your throne. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that, that you are divine and human. In your divinity, you hear the prayers of your people. And subject all of your enemies. Lord Jesus, we come to you praying that you would fill our hearts with love for you. As our Savior and our King. And we ask that You would give us also courage to live faithfully in this world as we remember that that You have all authority. And when we obey You, Lord, we do what is right. We pray all this in Your name. Amen.